With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast, powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy, and we have so much to talk about. Before we even get to all the hockey news, we are the hockey news, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of snow news in Toronto. So I'm curious, where do you land on this? Because some people like to make fun of the Torontonians and say this is nothing. Mm -hmm. Do you land on the, this is no big deal, or do you think this was a legit snowstorm? I mean, it was pretty legit. I I went in underestimating it, and then I had to shovel out like my laneway and uh, like my front, and uh, it was a lot. It was heavy. Mm-hmm. It was heavy. And I I actually, I actually saw on Twitter somebody who was from Edmonton who has also lived in Toronto pointed out that Toronto snow is a lot wetter hmm. and therefore heavier. And of course, there's nowhere to put it. Yes. So I, I felt I felt good that. People from Edmonton could uh, could sympathize with our plight. That's fair. I'm from Ottawa originally, so I'm pretty impervious to snow and cold. So I wasn't scared of the snow. Mm. That said, it was the most snow I've seen in Toronto in, I'd say, at least 15 years, maybe 20. Uh, and so it was a lot. I spent hours shoveling. I had to dig a World War One-style trench from my backyard, <laughs> which is where I keep my garbage cans, all the way to the front of right. the house. So I, I did total... At least two hours of shoveling Ooh, uh, um, wow. yesterday. That's yeah, so Toronto's never prepared for snow. Yeah, yeah, and so I get them making fun, um, but I, I'm in the middle. I'm like, it, it wasn't a big deal. I wasn't scared of it, yeah. but it was. It was there was a fair amount of snow. I think it's okay. It can be both. It was an adult dose. Yeah, that's fair. Yes. Okay. Okay. We what's do. breaking news? More breaking news. Than what we More already have. News. We've already got two big ones. Okay. Well, we do. We can say that the rates have declined, and I know a lot of the players that have it are asymptomatic. So yeah. I guess it's going to permit the schedule to play out and get closer to finishing mm-hmm. on time. Do you have an immediate reaction? I mean, all of this is all very interesting, and you know, I wonder if part of it is that so many players have had it that you know, there's a certain. I mean, I am not a scientist, but I feel like there's a certain period where you can't get it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, everybody except Tyler Bertuzzi is vaccinated. So, I'm, it, it's interesting, and, and obviously, it's great for the the league and the players that you know this will help the schedule. Uh, but I am no scientician. So mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Hockey herd immunity. And it's funny, we were already about to react to something that just happened because just before we started this podcast, we found out a few minutes earlier that the Montreal Canadiens had ended their GM search. Mm -hmm. They hire Kent Hughes. So let's talk about that for a little bit. I know you're quite familiar with his exploits because you're you're kind of our resident agent expert. Mm -hmm. And we know Hughes comes from the agent world. He lived in Boston for a long time, so there's a connection with Jeff Gordon as well. But he comes from the agent universe. He's also bilingual, of course. If Habs fans are worried about that, he passes that test because he's originally from Montreal. So what is your reaction to the hiring in terms of what you think he'll bring? And how confident are you that he can dig this team out of its current trench? Yeah, well, I'm very intrigued by the hire because... You know, Kent Hughes, obviously, he's got high-profile cl- you know, clients, Chris Letang, Patrice Bergeron, guys like that. Um, don't start the rumor mill Pending yet. Pending UFAs, here they come. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's two things that struck me right away. And one is that, you know, Cortex Management, which is the agency uh, that he, you know, was essentially one of the top dogs at, if not the top dog. Um, they've grown quite a bit over the past sort of five, ten years. And, and one of the things they did was they brought in Darren Ferris, who has Taylor Hall. Uh, and you know, with him, you get Ryan Barnes, who is a very well-respected agent as well. And so you had Kent Hughes and Anton Thun and Paul Capizano. And then you bring in Darren Ferris and Ryan Barnes. Um, you know, uh, Phil LeCavalier is there as well, uh, who's Vincent LeCavalier's brother and also a very well-respected agent himself. So you had sort of the merging 
thing of two groups uh, coming together and making you know this larger entity. I know they did a lot in terms of training facilities for their clients. Um, you know, I believe they opened up one in Montreal that was kind of a state of the art thing, and they have you know a lot of great resources. And then so you have that, and you have Kent Hughes that's uh, very much sort of the the big picture guy that not only is an is he an agent. But he's arranging this business. You know, they got buy-in from the Saputo family, which uh, you know is very well known in in Quebec. So they got a big you know influx of cash uh, in that regard. Um, so you have all that. So obviously he can take care of a shop. But then also you have the fact that his son Riley Hughes is a New York Rangers draft pick at Northeastern University. His other son Jack is a freshman at Northeastern University, and because he has a late birthday, he is draft eligible this season, and he is a potential first rounder for sure. So you have someone that has seen two of his own boys go through the steps of development, and obviously they're still en route to the NHL, but he has a familiarity with the different paths of you know how players become those elite soon-to-be NHLers. So he knows the ins and outs there. And I, I think that's very helpful where you're getting sort of a very big round picture with Kent Hughes. And obviously he's going to have a ton of contacts in the league just from doing <laughs> contracts and you know working with different players, uh, working with different trainers and talking with different agents. Um, and I will say, you know, I can't think of anybody in the agency world that does not like Kent Hughes. There's some great rivalries in the agency world. Oh, yes. I've never, yeah, I, I've never heard anyone say they don't like Kent Hughes. Okay, interesting. And and it's funny, you know, I joke about Chris Letang and Patrice Bergeron, who have been clients of his that are going to be unrestricted free agents going to Montreal. It doesn't actually make sense right now from a hockey and cap standpoint. But joking aside, one thing to consider with Kent Hughes is from a player relatability standpoint, he could be attractive. He could actually recruit more talent. He is sort of a unique GM in that he has a history of working specifically with Francophone clients. And we know there's a long recent history of Francophone players being not comfortable in Montreal, struggling if they're there. You know, Jonathan Durant, mental health, obviously had some struggles, anxiety problems, being one of the, the first... Uh, high-impact French-Canadian players to play there for a long time. Jose Theodore was probably the last star who was a, a Francophone player, unless mm. you count, you know, I know Mike Ribeiro, Mike Ribeiro is French-speaking as well, but Jose Theodore won a major award. But it goes all the way back to, you know, Pierre Turgeon, Vincent Donfus. It's been a long time. So I do wonder in the long term if someone like Hughes is going to be more likely to attract that type of player uh, when he's trying to sign free agents. I think it's entirely possible. And I did talk recently to Bill Zito just for an interview for our magazine, and he was sort of explaining just the advantages of coming from an agent background, which he did as well. You do learn a lot more about what players go through, how they interact with their coaches, what are their training facilities, what type of access they have to to you know, sports psychologists, mental health uh, expertise, all that kind of stuff. So being someone who straddled the line on either side, I think, is advantageous and I think will improve uh, the relationship that Hughes has with players coming forward. And I think maybe, I'm not sure, but I think it could be more likely that he can have a broader scope of who he can target. I know Bar Mark Bergevin, of course, was aggressive in his tenure, but a lot of that was trades. It wasn't mm -hmm. all just free agent signings. So it'll be interesting for the future. The only thing is, if we're looking at what's on Kent Hughes' plate right now, it's not going to be an easy team to shape and mold in the near future because so many of the Habs contracts at the moment are long-term, whether it's Mike Hoffman, Joel Armia, Christian Dvorak, David Savard, Jeff Petrie. These aren't guys who are on expiring deals. You can't start a rebuild for a team that's last overall and sell off those parts. They're going to be here for a long time. So I do think it could be a while before we see Ken Hughes' fingerprints on the team. It's similar to what we saw with Detroit. Steve Eisman comes in the first year or two, it's fairly conservative because he's basically waiting out a lot of the bad contracts mm -hmm. that were signed in the previous regime. Now we're starting to see Eisman shape the team the way he wants it, but it took a little while. So I do think Habs fans have to be patient in terms of what to expect in the short term from Ken Hughes. So if we're looking at the standings right now, obviously the Habs, they're at the bottom. Another team that seems to be getting closer to the bottom with each day is the Edmonton Oilers, which is crazy to think they were a first-place team in November. They have two different six-game losing streaks. So I had a few things I wanted to talk about with the Oilers today, but one, if we're just talking from a team standpoint, what's going on? Can this team be fixed, or do you think they've sort of just they've lost the plot and it's not going to happen this year, and are they going to miss the playoffs? Well, I mean, they need a goalie. 
Straight up. And, you know, they're going through a lot of problems right now with goaltending. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Stuart Skinner just ended up on the COVID list. Uh, so that's just another goaltending issue to deal with. Um, but that, that's the start of it. Obviously, mistakes were made uh, when it came to building the goaltending uh, pipeline for this particular season. And you know what? They're just so top-heavy. And hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, but I will say that I was not a fan of the Zach Hyman contract. And I think this is part of the problem is the way that the dollars are spread out in Edmonton. You got $5.5 million for Zach Hyman. To me, it's like for what he's giving you, why couldn't Ryan McLeod just do that? Why couldn't Brendan Perlini do that? Both those players make less than a million dollars. <throat> if you had not signed Zach Hyman, you could have gotten yourself a pretty good goaltender uh, potentially on the free agent market or made a trade for a goalie that had you know a, a pretty good contract uh, in terms of dollar amount. I, I just think that it wasn't the right moves and you know they bring in Duncan Keith but at the same time like this doesn't seem like a team that knows how to win mm-hmm. so I mean Duncan Keith obviously is a, a future Hall of Famer in terms of what he's accomplished uh, during his time in Chicago but if he's not bringing to you lessons on how to become a champion then at this point in, in his career how much is he really doing for you so I, I don't think that it's a terminal case because that division is really kind of wonky right now mm-hmm. and you know they have games in hand so in terms of points percentage they're not dead in the water they have a lot of work to do but there's definitely some things that need to be done there and goaltending top of the list yeah I, I agree with some of what you're saying I, I think Zach Hyman to me isn't the problem because he's been one of the best players on the team and I think they've been really yeah, yeah I mean he has and that's that's saying that's he's saying something scored too on more five on five than he has been on for five on yeah five. but I, I think they're they're happy with what he's contributed yeah. and I agree the numbers have they've gone down but compared to the first two or three months of the season mm-hmm. he was like top 10 in the league and high danger chances five on five so he was doing what he was brought in to do for the most part I'd yeah. say but to me the money they gave him isn't the problem. It's the money they gave to Duncan Keith and Cody Cece. There's your goaltending money right there. Yep. Two bad signings, I think. Keith, given his age, Cece, given his typical struggles throughout his career. Cece-ness. Yes, and it's not. this was not a hindsight 2020. We knew in the summer you need a goaltender. And people can mm-hmm. say, well, no, Mike Smith was great last year. He's hurt. Yes, he's hurt because he's 39 years old. And that is something you could have foreseen, right, if you're Ken Holland. So to me, if there's blame to lay, I, I, it does have to go to Ken Holland's feet, er, at Ken Holland's feet, because I think everyone saw what was wrong with the team going into the season, and he made the choice to not fix those issues. Mm-hmm. And we do have, I do agree with the, the team being top-heavy. It's not competitive enough. I think the bottom six is not competitive enough either. And when you're seeing a what appears to be a room that has kind of just lost its oomph, you do have to consider a coaching change as well. Whether Dave Tippett is the real source of the problem, it's debatable, but Mm. either way, it has the look of a team that's quit on its coach. We saw what happened in Vancouver. It's a proven thing. When you bring in a coach, it gives that injection of excitement. It tends to work, at least in the short term in the NHL. It's a long-term pattern. So I think a mid-season coaching change could be warranted here, given the urgency, especially, you know, we talk about it all the time, the wasting of the prime years of Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ties into what I wanted to discuss next. And if you look at Connor McDavid, Obviously, he's been ornery in recent interviews. Understandable, the team's in a big slump. He hasn't had much to say. Um, But he also had some interesting things to say last week when the Evander Kane rumors were starting. Uh, And people were asking about Kane's checkered history, all the different allegations, the bankruptcy, gambling, sexual assault, the list goes on and on. And McDavid said, I'm not really here to discuss optics issues. If fans don't like it or the media doesn't like it or whatever, it is what it is. Um, I didn't like that response personally, and I'll explain why, but I want to give you the floor first. The question I want to know is, we know Connor McDavid is the best hockey player in the world, and I think we'll look back on him as the best hockey player in a 25-year span by the time his career is over. But if you compare him to, for example, LeBron James, in terms of the impact, the social impact Mm. uh, an athlete can have as, as the best in that sport, do you think McDavid does enough, and is he a good enough ambassador for the game? Does he have a responsibility? Is it the Spider-Man complex? Shout out to Steven, Mr. Spider-Man. With, does great power require you to use your responsibility? Hmm. There. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I always go back to the early days of McDavid's career uh, when he said, 
you know, to a bunch of us in, in Toronto in the summer, like, look, I'm not going to be the kind of guy that gives you like big quotes. Like he, he doesn't want to be controversial. And I think we've seen him sort of mature to the point where he will say more than he used to. Uh, and we've seen that sort of in the past, I would say year, two years, uh, where he, he has spoken out more when he is passionate about something. It, I mean, typically on ice, um, you know, whether it's, you know, how things are uh, deployed, you know, how the NHL is going, officiating, things like that. So I think he's growing into the role, uh, but I, I still think it's not something he's really comfortable with. And clearly he is a big time competitor. And I mean, we've seen it on his face for years that he's frustrated. You know, he wants to be the guy going for Stanley Cups and it has not happened in Edmonton. So, it, you know, it, it seems like it's weighing on him. I mean, we're not in his mind, but you can kind of see it with his body language that he wants change. You know, he wants to be part of the solution. And I'm sure he puts a ton of pressure on himself to to be even better than he has been. But, you know, at some point, you, you do have to look around and say, well, I have twice as many points as any of my teammates other than Leon Dreisaitl. I don't know what else I can do other than put on goalie pads and then I'm not scoring two points a game, so it's pointless. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I sympathize with McDavid. I mean, this is this is the life he wanted, to, to be a captain, uh, to be a leader, but he is still a young captain. We, you know, we have to remember that. He's still a young player. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not an easy situation. For sure. Um, I am a bit disappointed in him. I think there are certain elements I can sympathize with. Of course, the fact the team's not winning, that's clearly a, a, a warranted distraction. I think if he had Stanley Cup rings, he might be more open to talking about major issues because he wouldn't have that sort of pain lodged in his brain, he, mm. that desire to go further. Um, and I can understand that, you know, with Kane, it's not like it was an officially announced contract. There's speculation, so he can't commit to an opinion fully. That said, he I would argue he said more than he had to in a different way. He kind of went on the offensive. He went out of his way to sort of rub it in fans' faces, media's faces, take a shot. If you don't like it, it is what it is. He didn't have to say that. So to me, that's gatekeeping behavior. That's someone whose opinion matters. He's the best player in the world. He's on the competition committee. When he speaks, like you said, people listen. I think the cross-checking rule, or the the, the, the uh, crackdown on the enforcement of the rule, I think it's connected to McDavid. He's been very vocal about the officiating, the abuse he's taken in the past. Mm. Cross-checking calls are up 67%. I was doing the research for a story last week. So he does have an impact, and I think whether you want it to be the case or not, if you're the best in the world at a certain sport, you are going to be someone that kids look up to. And too bad, I know that you just want to go out there and play hockey, but that's not the way it works. You make $12.5 million for a reason. People come to see you. You're an icon. And I do think there's a certain degree of responsibility that comes with that. Even if it was just to say, you know, if those allegations are true, that would be unfortunate. But a lot of them have not been played out yet. We, I, I can't comment on it because I don't know if they're true. Even that would be better than I think what he said. Mm. And to me, what he says, what he said was sort of the equivalent metaphorically of slamming a door in the face of players and media. And that's a problem we have. I've said it before in hockey culture where the people that are sort of in the established power positions, they don't want to ask the hard questions. They don't want to expand the game and bring in people who think differently because they're comfortable. Mm. And in my opinion, McDavid, I'm not saying he has to get up on a soapbox and be Muhammad Ali, but I, I do think there is a responsibility that comes along with being the best in the world of something, whether that's fair or not. It's just the truth. Mm. People have his posters. Kids want to see him. They want to copy what he does. So when they see him commenting that way, I think that gets encoded in their brain in terms of how to deal with certain conflicts. That's just my opinion, but I can see both sides of it for sure. Uh, another major piece of breaking news happened uh, right before, not right before, but only a couple hours before the podcast today, and that is the announcement, uh, the PHF, so formerly the NWHL, uh, got a $25 million investment from the Board of Governors. The salary cap of the league is going to more than double to $750,000. Depending on the size of the roster, it means a minimum salary of thirty dollars or up to $37,500. So it's a major change. It's exciting. But the main question, of course, that comes along with it is, does it move the needle with the PWHPA? the best women's players in the world who are centralizing, playing, getting ready to compete for gold. Obviously, we want them in the same league as the Mm -hmm. PHF players. That's when you're going to get the Super League. So do you think that this announcement brings us closer to that dream coming true? I mean, I I certainly think that it it brings us closer. And if I'm not mistaken, there's going to be expansion teams as well. Uh, One in Montreal, one somewhere in the U.S. Uh, So I think that that helps as well because... 
you know, if you have this influx of talent, then obviously they're going to have to push some other players out. So at least now you're getting two more rosters. And, you know, I mean, the level of competition is going to come up when you get those Dream Gap players, when and if. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely a step in the right direction. And, you know, I, I think it, it gets the ball rolling and it shows commitment from the Board of Governors. And then they can go out and, you know, what you hope for is that they get more sponsors, which means more money. You know, the, the deals they get reap more advertising revenue. And, you know, again, with these expansion teams, I think what you hope for is that whoever owns those teams has deep pockets mm -hmm. and is willing to invest in uh, the women's game and say, yeah, we're, we're willing to pony up for this because we see the value in having a strong pro league uh, for these players. And so, yeah, you know, it's, it's baby steps. You know, I mean, their salary cap still wouldn't cover uh, a minimum NHL salary. Uh, but again, you know, and I wrote about this in the magazine uh, that's, that's coming out soon. You know, like the NHL had like an 80-year head start on pro women's hockey. Right. And so it's, it's hard to compare the two because they're at such different stages of their development, their growth. And, you know, unfortunately, now we're in a hugely saturated media market and, and sports media market. So a lot of people and, you know, a lot of hockey fans, I think, look down at uh, the pro women's game. And I think it's very unfair uh, because they're still building mm -hmm. something. And I, for me, I think it's, it's great to, uh, to have something developing where they can put something together. And, you know, progress is slow, unfortunately, but this is a, a positive step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it is too. And I assume we're not going to see uh, major reactions from the, the members of the Dream Gap Tour who are currently centralizing preparing for the Olympics because they're so committed to that. Sure. But... I do think that there's a lot of potential there, especially because of one crucial detail. So there is a salary cap, but unlike what you see in the NHL where you can't exceed 20% of the cap on one deal, there's no limit on a single contract for a player on this new deal as long as the team is cap compliant. Mm. And that's really exciting because it means, so if the, if the minimum salary is 30000 nothing's stopping you from handing out $100,000 to Marie-Philippe Poulain mm. or Hillary Knight or Kendall Coyne. So... That, to me, is a true game changer, and I think that has potential to attract the elite players, even if it's maybe it's just a trickle. A couple of them decide to cross over because mm. the money is actually enticing. It's actually a, a good living. So that little detail, to me, I'm particularly excited about, and we don't know for sure what the reaction is going to be. At least before the podcast started, I hadn't seen any reaction from people on the Dream Gap side, but um, to me, it's there's there's got to be potential here. It's it's definitely better a better place for for the PHF than when, where we were 24 hours ago, right? So yeah. anything that brings us closer to the Unified Super League, I think is is exciting. So I, I think it's a win for sure. Um, it's crazy. The news cycle has just been bananas lately. It's yeah, it's, it really is. And this was another uh, really unfortunate piece of news that dropped over the weekend. Um, Reed Boucher, we knew him as a New Jersey Devils draft pick, Vancouver Canuck. Um, he pleaded guilty over the weekend uh, to sexual assault. Uh, when he was 17, he was building a family that had a 12-year-old daughter, and he pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting her in 2011. Um, so obviously what he's done is horrible, and it's a shame that the punishment he's going to get from the plea I don't think is going to fit the crime anymore. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that. But I also want to talk a little bit about USA Hockey's involvement in this. Um, they claimed that they did not have knowledge of the incident in 2011. At the same time, they proactively, in 2011, removed Reed Boucher from the billet house, mm. which is, to me, a major contradiction, implying they did have knowledge something was afoot. Mm. So in, in my opinion, I think we have to look a little harder at USA Hockey's role in this, just as we did the Chicago Blackhawks role in what happened to Kyle Beach. It wasn't just Brad Aldrich. It was also the Blackhawks in general mm. who were responsible for what happened. So where do you land on that? I know it's a big question. It's a tough question. Mm. Do you think we should be holding USA Hockey more accountable? Well, I, I certainly think the questions need to be asked here uh, in terms of what they originally thought had happened back then. Um, did they think that it was just, you know, some sort of like bullying and, and not of a sexual nature? Um, you know, what was their understanding of why he needed to be removed from that house? I think that's the, the big question right now. Um, 
and everything stems from that because if they knew it was something to do with the daughter that was of a sexual nature then that should have been huge red flag like go to the authorities deal with this right away um you know obviously you know suspend boucher from from any activities involving usa hockey um that should have been the course of action back then it's hard to say right now because we don't have the pieces of information. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, if you're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, what's the story? Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to find an excuse for USA Hockey right now. And I think, you know, they're going to be under the microscope uh, in terms of, you know, how they, they sort this out and, and, and what happened at the time because it's, it's very puzzling. For sure. And I want to read just a couple of tidbits that I've sort of found as I was researching a little bit. Um, so one, okay, this one comes from The Athletic, uh, one of the, the initial stories. I think this is from Katie Strang. Uh, in March of 2011, we spoke to parents of both minors, and there were no accusations made, but Boucher was proactively removed from the billet home. And that's a USA Hockey spokesperson. In March of 2021, we were notified by police of allegations of sexual misconduct and have fully cooperated with their investigation. So that's the first statement that comes out from USA Hockey. But then Rick Westhead follows up. He says, I asked USA Hockey why Reed Boucher was removed from his billet home in 2011 if there was no abuse accusations made. I also asked what information uh, the parent of the victim's friend provided to USA Hockey that prompted the conversations with parents. There's no response yet to that question. Again, that's a major contradiction in my mind. Uh, And then more from Westhead, which is Michigan Coalition to End Domestic Violence and Sexual Violence. Domestic and Sexual Violence Executive Director Sarah Rennie told me sports coaches in the state of Michigan are not mandatory reporters, meaning coaches, unlike teachers and social workers, would not face criminal consequences for not informing police of suspected abuse. So that takes away the motivation to Mm. come forward and notify authorities because if there's no punishment, if you're in a position of power, you think, oh, maybe nothing's going to happen. I can let this be swept under the rug. Mm. Uh, The next piece of sort of circumstantial evidence, um, again, this is from Rennie as well, with this plea deal, which is which is absolutely inappropriate and wrong. If Reed Boucher avoids legal trouble for five years, he'll have no criminal record. He'll be eligible to travel and to work, even as a coach of young kids without any trouble. So that's not a story, a piece of evidence. That's more the cause and effect. He's right. able to come forward, and he might be back in the game when maybe this could have been tamped down right away if USA Hockey came forward with the information that it seems to me like it had. At the very least, I think this warrants a deeper investigation, just like what we got with the Blackhawks in terms of how involved they were. And heads did roll as a result. And I think it's only fair to ask the same questions of USA Hockey. In the trade rumor mill, we're getting closer. It's it's funny, because of where we are in the hockey season, it feels like we're closer to the stretch run, but because of all the postponements, we're only about halfway through the season. At the same time, there has been a lot of talk about Dallas Stars defenseman John Klingberg, who he downplayed the idea that he requested a trade, but he did imply that he's unhappy with contract negotiations. It appears very unlikely they're going to be able to re-sign him. He's going to double his salary. He's currently at, I think it's $4.25 million. So he's going to be in the $8 million range, I'd say, at least in the summer as a right-shot defenseman. We know the Dallas Stars have some expensive RFAs, Jason Robertson, Dennis Gurianov, Jake Ottinger. So it's going to be hard to fit him under the cap. And he expressed that disappointment. Later this week, it was reported that Dallas is taking it a step further and actively shopping him. So if we accept that there is going to be a mid-season Klingberg trade, which is complicated for a Dallas team that's still in contention right now, what do you think would be the ideal landing spot for Klingberg? Well, I have two very different destinations. Um, you know, the first is Florida, uh, because obviously the Panthers right now are you know one of the gems in the league. Uh, but you can never have too much talent, especially when you're going for it. And you know, bolstering what is already a nice decor with John Klingberg, I think would be great. You know, they obviously have a ton of firepower up front. They've got goaltending. They've got some great defensemen right now, but if you could get a John Klingberg and give up, you know, some combination of picks and prospects, then why not? Uh, the other team, uh, and this is sort of a, a, a dark horse uh, for sure, is Anaheim. And I basically say the Ducks because they've overachieved. Why not treat yourself? Mm-hmm. They've got the cap space. They've got a pretty good defense core already. But given this season, uh, you know, with COVID protocols and just injuries in general, you know, if you're Anaheim, you're saying to yourself, okay, we've got some great young talent, you know, guys like Zegris and Drysdale and Troy Terry, you know, we still got the veterans. If we get into the playoffs 
even if we don't go far, it's great experience for those young guys. And you want to foster a culture of winning. I mean, we th- I think we all thought it was going to take several years before we even considered the Ducks back in the playoffs. But they're right in the thick of that Pacific Division. They're in a pretty good spot right now. So you add John Klingberg, even as a rental at this point, it signals to your players that they've done a great job and deserve uh, some you know, some help. And, you know, for Klingberg, I think it would put him in a situation where, you know, he could thrive in the short term and whether he stays in Anaheim on a a long-term contract or he goes to the open market, uh, at least he can sort of show off his wares, you know, get a bit of a fresh start Mm -hmm. because obviously, you know, things in Dallas are a a little murky with him right now. Uh, But I just think it'd be kind of a fun one. And, and the Ducks have the cap space. Yeah, I like the treat yourself. Treat uh, yourself. Yeah, for sure. I like that better than the Panthers because the Panthers I mentioned is a fit for Jacob Chikrin. But the Panthers have four righties right now in their top six already because you have Uyghur, yeah. Ekblad, Montour, Radko Gudis, all righties. So I don't know if that would be almost skewing too far. You'd have five righties then unless, mm. unless you sent one the other way in the trade. Uh, but I do think the Panthers are going to be active. Make no mistake. I had a few teams, you know, the Kings are a team I'm looking at. Uh, they've been pretty dominant in five-on-five play. They just can't finish. Their shooting percentage is low. That's sort of the, this since the Daryl Sutter era, that's always the Kings' personality. They, they control the play. They can't finish. And I know you do have Drew Doughty on the right side already, but cl- bringing in Klingberg, especially for the power play, not only can he generate offense himself, he can put your shooters in better position mm. to score higher percentage uh, opportunities, yeah. which could help, I think, the team convert more chances. Um, the Bruins, I know, are a team that's been linked to him, but again, they need the left side more than they need the right. They still have Charlie McAvoy and Brandon Carlo on the right side. Um, the treat the treat yourself angle for me is the Nashville Predators. Again, yeah. a team that I did not expect to be doing what they're doing. Last year, they were supposed to be a buyer. They make the playoffs. This year, or, or a seller. And they're supposed to be selling Matisse Alcombe. They don't do it. They re-sign him, and they, they make the playoffs. This year, same thing. People are talking about Philip Forsberg. Instead, the Preds have one of the best records in the league, and they do have a hole left over from when they traded Ryan Ellis. I know you bring in Philippe Myers, but it's not the same thing that he yeah, brings, right? Yeah. So if you're looking for that power play, puck-moving presence on the right side to replace what Ellis brought, Klingberg, I think, is an ideal fit there. So that's the team I'm looking at. Also, you have to look at the New York Islanders, and it's strange because they're currently... Drum roll, brrr, 16 points out of a wild card spot, but they've only played 31 games. They have a ridiculous number of games in hand. Yeah. They've gotten a lot of their road games out of the way already. They've won 6 out of 10. They are heating up. Ryan Pulik's been hurt, and even when he's healthy, he's got that monster shot, but he never produces offensively the way you think he would, given his talent. It's very similar to, I think, Colton Pareko, big mm. shot. Doesn't pile up the points. So maybe he's long-term more of a PP2 guy, and John Klingberg, I think, could help. Of course, Noah Dobson has made some really nice steps forward, but it, it would take a little bit of pressure off him as well, get the Islanders moving the puck better. So it is that would be them betting on themselves. But Lou Lamorello, he's, he's fine with that. He's fine betting on himself, and he's sure. been known to make many midseason upgrades in, mm-hmm. in his career as a GM. So that's interesting to me. Uh, also in the news, uh, he is the first star of the week, and a lot of people have been talking about him on Twitter. Brad Marchand, the Boston Bruins. He's on fire, as he always seems to be these days in the last half decade. Uh, and there's been some discourse. I started some of the discourse, or at least took part in it, uh, on social media, just asking the question, is Brad Marchand a Hall of Famer? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think I, I've settled on a, a case, but where do you land? Is he a Hall of Famer right now? I believe he is. And, I mean, he's won pretty much everything except an Olympic gold medal. Uh <clears throat> Had NHLers been at the Olympics, uh, he probably would have been a gold medalist. And obviously, he has been very outspoken about the fact that he wanted to go. Maybe he'll still defect. (laughs) Maybe. Probably not. But maybe. Uh, But yeah, he's won everything in his career. He's an amazing two-way player. And, you know, he's got a Stanley Cup. You know, he doesn't have a ton of individual awards necessarily. But by the time he retires, he's going to have more than 1,000 points in the NHL, more than 1,000 games played. And, you know, I always look at teams that have won the Stanley Cup. They always have Hall of Famers on it. And, you know, if you look at that Bruins team, it's been a while, but, you know, Bergeron, obviously Hall of Famer, Chara, Hall of Famer. Uh, I think Marshawn is probably another Hall of Famer as well. Mark Reckie on that team too, yeah. True, Mark Reckie was there, yeah. 
So maybe he's not a first ballot guy, but I could see him getting in in like his second or third year uh, because I think, you know, he has set a bit of a template. And I actually tweeted about this the other day when I talked to sort of sub six foot forward prospects these mm-hmm. days. You know, the two names that they always say are their models are Braden Point and Brad Marchand. Uh, and obviously with Point, you know, being a center and being able to thrive and being elite is is one of the reasons they looked at him. And with Marshawn, it's his complete game. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he also does put up points and find his way, you know, as a smaller player in the NHL. So for me, he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's done a lot more than some of the guys that are already in the Hall. And I think that's the easy case. It's interesting, too, for a player who, for the first half of his career, was kind of Pat Verbeek. You know, mm. going to be a very good player for his whole career, but also defined by being an agitator. Yeah. And now he's sort of elevated to the next level. And it's interesting because my reaction when I was talking about it on Twitter last week was, well, I don't know if you can call him a lock because if you re- lock to me has to be if you retire right the second, do you get in? Mm. And my initial reaction was no, whereas Patrice Bergeron could retire right now. He's in. Uh, and if you look at the surface, there are no individual awards. He's had two top five finishes in the Hart Trophy vote. But I always have my own Hall of Fame, the, the Matt Larkin Hall of Fame, is were you top five or better at your position for a period of five-plus years? That's mm. my test. That's why I always was Team Eric Lindros, Team Pavel Bury. They passed the test to me. And if you look at Brad Marchand in his current run, two first-team All-Star selections, two second-team All-Star selections. He's probably going to be an All-Star again this year, although Jonathan Huberdeau on the, on the left wing is going to give him competition. Yep. Maybe he's going to be a second-team All-Star. We'll see how it plays out. And for a fifth straight season, he's scoring at a pace of 100 points or better. So to me, you could argue in the last five years, he's the best left winger in the game. Mm. And based on that, he does pass my Hall of Fame test. And I do think he's going to be in. And like you said, he's going to hit those basic benchmarks, the Bernie Federico benchmarks. Right. He's going to get his 1,000 points and all that kind of stuff yeah. too by the time he retires, assuming he stays healthy. So I think, yes, I think I've surprised myself by kind of coming to this conclusion. But I think he is a Hall of Famer. Maybe he'll even be first ballot by the time he's done. We'll, we'll see. Uh, let's get to some listener questions right now. The first one, it's one of the, the more interesting questions we've had for a while. Um, it's from Don C. McDaniel. Don wants to know, has there ever been an entire period played without a whistle or stoppage in play? 20 minutes of continuous play. Uh, if so, what is the, or if no, what is the longest length of uninterrupted play? So I dug into it and I kept finding the same answer. The the amount of uninterrupted time, it, it was there was some contradictory information, but everything goes back to this game, March 11th, 2014, Capitals-Penguins. Uh, the most common report I saw was that there was no whistle from 1921 left on the clock in the first to 536. So hmm. 14 minutes and 24 seconds without a whistle. Wow. I saw a couple others saying it was a, a, not as much time, but that's the most common number I've gotten, Don. So as far as I know, that's the answer. Unless, did you find anything else, or is that... I didn't. I just assumed you would look it up. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to lie. You assumed right. <laughs> All right. Hopefully, that's a good answer for you, Don. Uh, next one is from Jim Linehan, and Jim wants to know, with the Bruins set to pay $9.5 million a year to Charlie McAvoy, the most money in Bruins history, do they go all in and get some protection on his left side, or do they let the Caps, the Caps, Isles, Game 6, and Lightning keep running him? So I think Jim is a Bruins fan. He's got some bitterness over seeing McAvoy get, get run around. Fair right. enough. Um, I, Jim, I absolutely think they should. I think they need to. There's major urgency in Boston, in my opinion. They're still a really good team. We know the window's closing. We know Tukarask, again, will be a UFA after this year. He's back. But maybe this is his final ride. We know Patrice Bergeron is a UFA. Maybe he retires. It's entirely possible. So you've got to take your shot in this window while you still have a chance. And you've got to make, I think, a major upgrade to try and keep up with the teams that you haven't been able to get past in the playoffs mm. over the last couple of years. And we were just talking about it with the Klingberg question a little bit. But to me, it's the left side. It, to me, it's a Jacob Chikrin is the piece you need if you're Boston. I just don't know if they have the assets to get him. Mm. So maybe you have to settle for someone like Nick Letty, who's going to be one of the top rentals, I think, yep. as a left shot defenseman. Yeah. I like Nick Letty a lot. I think he brings more to a team than just what he does on the ice um, by himself. I, I will say this. Obviously, <laughs> Boston needs upgrades on the defense, but I wouldn't do it at the deadline. Um, and the reason being, I don't think this is their year. I don't think they can do it. I, that that division's just too good. It's ridiculous. Like, they're fourth, and you know you can talk about points percentage and games in hand and all that stuff. But like they are literally the fourth best team in that division. So even if they found some magic in the first round, they're going to come up against a tough opponent in the second round, and I think they're going to be outgunned. What I do see is that 
you know, there is going to be not a reckoning, but there's going to be a reset in Boston. Because as you mentioned, there's some of that old guard that is still potentially on their way out. We don't know about how long Rask and Bergeron will be in the organization. You know, this is going to become McAvoy's team very, very soon in, in more than one way. So you do need to set the table, but... Can you do it through a trade at the deadline? As you said, I don't know if they have the assets to, to win out, something like that. Having said that, if you wait until the summer and free agency where you can deal with every team trade-wise or you can just sign guys via free agency, then all of a sudden you say, look, we're the Boston Bruins. It's a fantastic organization. It's a great city with great fans. Why wouldn't you want to play here? Then your net's a little wider and you start building things back up because, you know, you're not going to scrape the bottom. You don't have to. You're still going to have some excellent players, you know, led by McAvoy and Pasternak. Um, but you do need to sort of fill in the pieces. And uh, I, I think the summer's the better time to do that. Yeah, that's fair. And I do think a piece that could shake loose. I would have thought he would be available approaching the deadline, but the Anaheim Ducks are playing too well. Hampus Lindholm is going to be a UFA a left shot, and that's someone who would be a perfect fit, I think, for what the Bruins are, are missing right now mm-hmm. if he decides not to stay with the Anaheim Ducks. So that's a name to watch, but I don't think he's going to be available at the deadline with the Ducks playing too well. Uh, another question that's deadline-related. So you can see that people are starting to think this way now. This is from Sutton, in brackets, Steve Eiserman's burner. Uh, I know it's still way early, but what did the Red Wings do at the deadline? So to me, I think it's pretty clear. You're, you're obviously, you're not buyers yet. You're still doing this slow cook rebuild. Yeah. Um, you're on the playoff periphery. You've made some really nice strides so far this season with your rookies. Watch for the next issue of the Hockey News if you want to read more about the Red Wings rookies, by the way. Mm-hmm. Free plug. Um, it's obviously way too early to make aggressive moves and sell off futures. And Eiserman's been very adamant about that, that he doesn't want to do anything dumb. Yeah. If he's making a trade, he still wants to have controllable assets coming in, which is why he traded for Verona and Nendelkovic. Um, they're five points back of the wild card. Boston has five games in hand. So yeah. the playoffs are unlikely. That said, the team is playing well enough. I don't think you have to rush and make moves now. You can wait till the deadline gets closer. And when it does, you have some expiring assets you can move. So you can move Thomas Grice, pending UFA. Team needs a backup goalie for the playoffs. You can move Nick Letty, of course, as I already said. That's Mm -hmm. a slam dunk, and maybe teams will overpay if it's not a great market. Maybe you get a first-round pick for him, whether it's deserved or not. Uh, You know, Vlad Nemesnikov, Danny DeKaiser, guys like that. These are all expiring contracts you can move. And if you're out of it in a couple months, why not? You, you can you can do that. The other name I keep an eye on is Tyler Bertuzzi. So if you think of it, yes, there's the risk with the vaccine. And, and if you're a Canadian team, maybe you don't want to trade for Tyler Bertuzzi. But if you think about the pattern of the virus, it, it's, it send, tends to get dormant when you get to the warm weather months. If you're trying to make a deep playoff run, maybe you don't have to worry as much about Tyler Bertuzzi getting sick in June. He has one year left on his deal at $4.75 million, having a phenomenal year. To me, it's almost like an all-time sell-high moment of Bertuzzi's career. Mm. And you know, based on the Red Wings' trajectory, it's not like by the time they get really good, Bertuzzi's going to be at his peak anymore. He plays a style that's pretty taxing. He had major back surgery as well in the offseason. So I would consider cashing out that chip, and it's a a two-year rental too. Mm. So you could actually get a really nice return for Tyler Bertuzzi. That's very intriguing. And if you trade him to a state like, you know, Florida or Texas where they don't care. Yeah, we don't care. Yeah. Come on, like, Tyler. Come you know, on. Like St. Louis is probably fine. Yeah. I mean, that's intriguing. I, you know, my thought was sort of along the lines of you see what you can get in terms of guys like DeKaiser and Nemesnikov where, you know, they're, they're short-term rentals and maybe you only get like a late round pick. But it's about stacking assets. And, you know, I, I think, again, you know, this summer for the Red Wings, is going to be very important where they just need to continue to shore things up. And I mean, Nick Letty is the most interesting. I mean, we've mentioned him a couple of times now. You know, if you can get a good deal for him, then yeah, you trade him because I think he will be in demand. On the other hand, if you think he would be willing to stay for a couple more years, mm-hmm. he's the type of guy that I feel teaches younger defensemen how to be better. And, you know, we saw this with Matt Niskanen as well in his mm-hmm. career, where even if, you know, he was good on the ice by himself, but what he did for the rest of the blue line was invaluable. And I, I think Nick Letty is the same kind of guy. He just, he's just a glue guy. And I kind of feel like the Islanders have sorely missed him. Um, so if you're the Red Wings, maybe say, hey, Nick, okay, we know you're a veteran, but would you stick around for another two, maybe three years? 
Let's get you under contract. You can help continue to shepherd what we're doing here mm-hmm. on the on the back end. And I, I think that would be a, of some nice value. And then you continue to add in the offseason. You shape this roster. You're building it around guys like Sider and Raymond and all those good young players you have. Um, so, you know, things are in a good direction right now. And I think you just you keep grabbing assets. If it's draft picks, you can use those draft picks for trades when you need mm-hmm. them. And you just keep pushing forward at a slow and steady rate. Yeah, good good points. And I, I, with Letty, I, it kind of reminds me of – it always sticks with me. A GM told me this. And he, he was – there was a player he had that was on the trading block. But he was like, you can't trade every veteran. You have to, you have to keep someone around to help yeah. teach the kids. And that, that uh, GM ended up keeping that player. And that player is still with his team right there now. So there you go. Uh, okay, let's finish off the podcast now with the rapid fire game, and you are the host. Yes, rapid oh, I fire. Thought, I thought he, I thought you were pulling out like index cards. <laughs> I was like, what? What is he? I have to. Yeah. I have to remember my questions oh, okay. now to make sure that uh, I get everything that I want. All right, so rapid fire is go. How many California teams will make the playoffs this year? Currently, all three are in a playoff position. I'm going to say two. Uh, I think the Ducks and Kings have won me over. I'm still skeptical skeptical about the Sharks, the talent level there. Mm. I'm going to agree because I am also going to say that only three Pacific teams make the playoffs because the Central is so good Mm -hmm. and the Pacific is not. So I agree with you there. Okay, second question. Who is a film director who never lets you down? Hmm. Well, it's still early, but I've become a really big fan of Denis Villeneuve. Oh. Uh, so whether it's all the way back to Incendie and Enemy, his, those are his like lesser known movies. But then Blade Runner 2049, I love. Prisoner is really good. Dune is excellent. Uh, Arrival, uh, even though it's really sad. But to me, in terms of a new, a newer director, mm. and I'll, I'll steal a line from, from Bill Simmons, who has the Rewatchables podcast. You know, when you have season tickets to a director, mm-hmm. I think uh, to me, in terms of modern, I'd say Denis Villeneuve. Overall, I still think Christopher Nolan does something that's important for the movie industry, which is most of the time, but with Batman being the exception, he tells original stories. So he's mm-hmm. kind of a throwback to Steven Spielberg because so many major directors now get swallowed up and just make Marvel movies. Right. And he's a guy who actually re- releases blockbusters that are original stories, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's Inception or Dunkirk or uh, Interstellar Tenet. or Tenet. Yeah, and they're not always perfect movies, but just the fact that he can get people to spend more than $100 million going to see those movies, right. and they're not comic book movies. It's really important what he stands for. Nice, nice. I think, yeah, Nolan's a good one. I, I still say, like, any Wes Anderson movie, other than, like, with with the animated ones, I'm not, like... There's a bit of an asterisk there where it's like, I don't see those as the same sort of, like, vibe, so I don't count those ones. Although, you know, I, I did see... Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, but with Wes Anderson, anytime he has a movie coming out, I'm like, all right, I'm in. Uh, and then I, I would also say Takeshi Miike, the Japanese director. Uh, and anytime he made a movie, I'm like, I'm watching that. Even mm-hmm. if I'm buying the bootleg DVD mm-hmm. on Spadina, um, I'm going to watch that. So uh, those would be my answers. Uh, next question. Who wins the Shane Wright sweepstakes? Uh, it's a tank battle. Okay, I got I to gotta give a shout out to my man, Bill Armstrong. I think because they have that pick. No, wait, do they not have that pick this year? No, they do. Yeah, they do. Okay. I I always forget which picks were were, that they lost. But uh, to me, it's just he's put so much effort into making this team horrible. No one has worked harder to get that pick. So I'm just going to decide the gods will reward him with Shane Wright to the Coyotes. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like it's going to be Arizona. Although if Seattle gets it, then that's kind of perfect because then your future number one and two centers are Shane Wright and Matty Beneers. Mm-hmm. That would be really nice. And for that sure. would be like how you build the Kraken for sure. So I'm going to say Arizona, but part of me thinks maybe Seattle. Although it is kind of funny, Montreal. You know, the draft is in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shane, they're in a position where, you know, I know the conditional pick, they would still keep it if it was that high. Yeah. So it's like, that would be kind of like draft magic to yeah. have him in Montreal for that. Okay, next question. If you went to a high school reunion, what would you be remembered for? Like from your high school days, when people be like, hey, Matt Larkin, yeah. you were the guy that... Dot, dot, dot. Uh, start in the school play. So I, I did a couple musicals. I did Sound of Music and Fiddler on the Roof. And when I was in my last year of high school, I was the star of Fiddler on the Roof, 
So, and there's still like a mural painted from that musical, like apparently in the high school. So that's sort of, I think that was the legacy I left behind. Uh, so I've been told. So that's pe- people would bring up. I, I, I would like to go to a high school reunion. I always say social media for our generation has killed it because right. everyone knows what everybody's up to. And that's a shame. I, I would have really enjoyed just seeing, you know, finding out in the organic way what people are up to instead of seeing, you know, their posts about how the horse medicine is good for <laughs> COVID, you know? Like I, I would have rather found that out at the high school reunion. Yeah, fair, fair. Uh, for me, it would be that I was part of an underground newspaper that nice. ran wild in the school. And, and it actually helped me get into Ryerson's journalism program. Like those were like my clips. It was like me and my friends ran an underground newspaper and all four of us got into Ryerson. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, so that's what I would be known for. Final question. Where should the new U.S. PHF expansion team go? We, we've heard Montreal's going to get a team. We heard there's going to be another American team. Where should it go? Okay. How about a pilot project? A, a, a dress rehearsal for a possible NHL relocation. So how about Houston? See what kind of response you get. In Houston... It's a lot of flights. A lot of flights. <laughs> but especially if there's no men's hockey to compete with it at the uh-huh. NHL level maybe you get a, a surprisingly strong response there and you build a little fan base which mm-hmm. would be really cool and it also prepares that market for an eventual relocation of the Coyotes to Houston interesting interesting mm-hmm. I got I have two options uh, one is Detroit slash Michigan you know like maybe you play in the suburbs uh, because what's very interesting is though even though Michigan is such a hockey hotbed they don't have any D1 women's teams, which is really bizarre to mm-hmm. me. Like, Michigan doesn't have a team. Michigan State doesn't have a team. You know, Western Michigan doesn't have a team. Um, so it's really an underserved market for women's hockey. Uh, so I think that would be – and geographically, you're in a good spot there uh, for travel. And the other one I'm thinking of is, like, Washington, D.C. Mm. slash Virginia, um, where, you know, you have a great organization in the NHL with the Caps – who could, you know, obviously sort of cross-promote with you. And again, it's not an oversaturated hockey market in terms of other teams. Mm. So you wouldn't have a ton of competition for hockey eyeballs. And it feels like that's a fan base that has been growing, I mean, really in the past decade, maybe even 15 years at this point. But I feel that uh, that's a market that would embrace a new team as well. Interesting. And, and the Caps, they have been progressive in terms of broadening their horizons. They're one of the leaders. I think they were the first team to really dive into eSports in the NHL. And they were ahead of the curve on sports betting as well. Ted Leonsis was sort of predicting, uh, and I think he think it was interviews he did with, with Graham Roos and our owner mm-hmm. a few years ago, predicting the boom in betting. So they are kind of cutting edge compared to most teams. So I could see the fit there. There you go. That is the rapid fire. Thank you for playing. All right. Some good questions and a good meaty podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening.